0: Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra RAP. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And uh, before we get into our show today, I wanted to give you a few announcements about some stuff coming up with the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. First off is our fall meeting. The fall meeting is right around the corner. It's just over a month away, uh, November 14th through the 16th in fabulous New Orleans, Louisiana. Make sure you sign up for this meeting. Uh, Andrea Nickel is the chair, and she has done an amazing job putting together a program that is interesting, unique, um, innovative, uh, with some fantastic speakers. I highly encourage you to go to ASRA.com. Go look up that meeting's information. Register for the meeting. We'd love to see you there. We're going to be there at that meeting. and. um If you see me in the hallway, see any of our other co-hosts in the hallway, come say hi to us. Uh, We love to talk to people that listen to the show, and uh, we'd love to meet you guys in person. Book your hotel room. Those go fast, and you want to make sure you get a hotel room right at the meeting because then you can be part of the whole fun right there in downtown New Orleans. Second is the ASRA Spring Meeting. That's going to come up in April 23rd to the 25th of next year. That's going to be in San Francisco. And uh, I've just got a quick peek at the program. I'm really impressed with some of the stuff that we're going to have at that meeting. I think you will be too. Uh, You're going to have to look out for the Abstract Submission opening coming up really soon. I think it's going to come up just after the uh, or right around the time of the fall meeting. So if you're working on research projects, case series, case reports, whatever, start thinking about how you wanna get that submission in for the spring meeting. We wanna see you guys there. We had a record number of posters at our last spring meeting and we wanna see if we can break that record this year. So keep your uh, research on the ready and look out for that submission opening coming up right around the corner. And lastly is a brief announcement. If you guys haven't seen it yet, the journal, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, that's the journal for this society, has a new editor in chief, and that's Dr. Brian Seitz. He's a great friend, wonderful academic person, who's been putting out research on this field for a long time and uh, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, too. Incredibly humble after all of his accomplishments. And we are so lucky to have him taking over as Editor-in-Chief from Dr. Mark Huntoon. And I think we're gonna see some great stuff coming out for the journal. So go check out the announcement on the Azra website, learn about Dr. Brian sites, and uh, be part of the journal, too. Submit your articles and your materials to that. So let's get to the today's topic, and uh, with me today as co-host uh, for our discussion is Gary Schwartz. He's the director of the Acute Pain Management Program at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, and a partner at AABC LLC Pain Group. Uh, Gary, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Raj, and I'm happy. You got my monodies right for the first time. I'm i know pretty impressed.
0: I've been practicing before we got online. I said it about four or five times in my head so I could get it right when I got on the call. But uh, it's a tough word, but I got it. And then uh, uh, our other co-host who's going to join us just shortly is Eric Schwenk. He's the Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Jefferson University Hospitals in Philadelphia. And as a busy person that he is, he got tied up at the last minute. But we're going to try to bring him in on the call as soon as he gets freed up here shortly. Our guest today is Dr. Shalini Shah. She's the Vice Chair of the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioptic Care at UC Irvine Health in Irvine, California. She's also the Director of Pain Services there. Shalini, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: So our topic today is on safe opioid use, opioid reduction strategies, and a special program that Shalini has been part of with uh, a joint effort from the American Society of Anesthesiology and the California Society of Anesthesiology to put together uh, educational material for practitioners to be better opioid prescribers and stewards of uh, pain management in our patient population. Uh, I, I think this is a fascinating topic because we've heard so much recently about the opioid crisis, about the challenge patients are having, and um, we really need to start turning the conversation as to what we, as practitioners, should be doing on a day-to-day patient, uh, day-to-day basis with our patients to help curb this. Trend of this epidemic, and I think Shalini and her team that she's been working with are really doing something towards that end. So, Shalini, I'll start out with a quick question here: um, What is the context of uh, your conversations with your colleagues that brought this effort to the forefront? That started making this happen? Where, what problem did you guys see?
2: Sure, um, you know, to give you some historical background and some perspective. When we, and we, I mean the California Society of Anesthesiologists, the specifically the Committee on Pain Medicine, when we were charged with producing content that's directed towards patients and, and prescribers, we realized there's really a dearth, a big gap in between what's out there for physicians and what's really out there for patients. I think a lot of pain societies and a lot of medical societies do a lot of great education towards physicians, but there isn't that much out there for patients to learn about and specifically, patients who are coming in for surgery. So what we decided to do at the CSA is create a patient video. And the emphasis of the video was that we could educate patients on what are pain medications, what are the side effects, what to expect, how long to use, what to do with um, leftover medications um, in a very short, concise format, meaning no more than three minutes because most people's attention span is not greater than that. So we created this video with the premise that we would employ it into all or as many major medical centers that we could in California. So on the uh, Committee on Pain Medicine, we have about just about every opioid or pain leader from every major academic medical center in California on this committee. And the hope is, is that we're able to deploy it either in the pre-upholding area to patients or as they're in their um, hospital beds recovering from surgery, and watch this video just to give them a premise, an idea of what pain medications are that's in a easy-to-digest format. So that's how it all started.
1: I think the video is great. I viewed it myself. I saw the English version. My Spanish is not up to date, but I thought that was a great <laughs> job you guys did putting it in two languages, where could the patients find it and also ASCs and surgical centers access the video so they can give it to their patients?
2: Yeah, great. So what we're trying to do is make this open source, meaning people don't need to reinvent the wheel. We've created the content. It's there. It's on YouTube. You can access it from the California Medical, uh, sorry, the California Association, um, sorry, the California Society of Anesthesiologists. Uh, Website And now, most recently, as of last week, even on the ASRA website under patient education. So it's there. If you want to use it for your hospital or your health system or your ASC, you can absolutely use it free of charge. It has closed captioning available because I know most hospitals require closed captioning. And by the way, if you need it in any other language, for example, we had a request from the Middle East, actually, from a physician in Saudi Arabia to translate it into Arabic for his patients, and we are currently doing that for him because it's an animated video, so we have that leeway of doing that. So if you need it in Vietnamese or any other language, do let us know, and we'd be happy to do that for you. Now, the other thing that most hospitals are asking is, can we co-brand this? Meaning, I work at UCLA, I work at UC Irvine, I work at Vanderbilt. I would like to put this in our hospital, but our hospital leadership requires Vanderbilt, for example. Uh, branding. And we could do that for you as well. So however you feel that you could use this to get this in front of your patients, we would help you with that. Um, And ASCs as well.
1: And you could uh, look that up at csahq.org. That's the California Society of Anesthesiologists website where the information is posted. One more quick question. I saw you guys also made an opiate toolkit, which I was quite interested in as more surgeries are going to ASCs, the ambulatory surgery centers. I saw you guys had a little pledge in some of the ASCs in California and a little toolkit as more and more procedures are being done there. If you could touch on that for us, Shalini.
2: Sure. You know, that was an interesting collaboration. Uh, We were contacted by the California Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. And they came to us at CSA and said, look, we have all these docs and all these patients who are really afraid of prescribing opiates. And we don't know if we're doing a good job is there anything that we could attest to or pledge to, to state that we, as our ambulatory surgery center, we're committed to best practices in pain management. So we decided, you know what, let's take this opportunity to lead as, you know, um, as anesthesiologists to lead the opioid um, discussion in California. So we partnered with CASA, which is the California Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers, to create a toolkit. And that includes office posters, patient brochures. This includes that video, um, all with stamp of approval of the CSA on it to, sh- to allow participating ambulatory surgery centers to demonstrate their commitment to opiate stewardship. And it really has taken off. So imagine, for example, in California, we have a plethora of ASCs. And each of these ASCs would commit to best practices of opiate prescribing. And that means, by the way, checking the PDMP. That means, only prescribing a certain amount for a certain for a certain amount of days. That means providing education to patients on discharge of what opiates do, what to expect with opiates, and by the way, co-prescribing naloxone for patients who meet the criteria, which is actually California law. So these are just some examples that all ASCs will now start to employ in California, or theoretically all ASCs will. Um, so slowly, 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 we're trying to make a a change in our community. And it's not going to happen overnight, we realize that. But there are pockets where a lot of opiates are coming out of that historically have never been um, focused on. For example, we always focus on patients who come out of the hospital, but not necessarily those who go for ambulatory day surgery. So this is another opportunity to um, make some headway.
0: So, uh, you know, you said something earlier, which kind of struck me, and I think that warrants a little bit more conversation. You said that uh, practitioners, physicians, we get a lot of education about opioid and opiate prescribing, and I think I almost disagree with that. I think that recently we are getting more education about opiate prescribing, but um, I, I'm, I'm starting to get to the age where I consider myself old um, in medicine now, <laughs> and um, I've been around long enough to know and remember when none of this stuff was normal, None of what you just said about what people should be doing in their practice was even talked about, considered. Um, you know, Basically, people were having surgery and they get 30 days of opioids. They don't get talked to about the consequences of it. They don't get talked to barely except for like, oh, you might get sick to your stomach, you might get constipated and don't use it too much. Um, and they don't get talked about how to dispose of them. They don't get talked about uh, alternative medication options. That's just what every single person went home with, 30 days, 30 days. And there was a lot of reasons why they went home with that. Um, But I don't think that's actually well known. I think that a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about would be novel to people like me who have been practicing for a long time. Maybe our recent graduates don't feel that way, but people that have been doing this for at least 10 years – This is all brand new, and if you're not in a place that you're hearing this information on a day-to-day basis like we do at academic centers, you may miss this.
2: You're right. Um, So I'll take a step back and, you know, correct my statement. What I meant was in the recent uh, past, we are getting a lot of education more recently. Um, But you're right. Even when I started my pain fellowship... Um, About 10 years ago, I also felt the same thing. We focused on opiate pharmacology as pain trainees, but we didn't hear the national dialogue on it that much. Um, So there is still a lot of education gaps that I think that we could do a better job on. Number one is how to taper right? We understand when we should start pain medications or we think we understand when we should start pain medications, but we don't really discuss how to get patients off pain medications, especially with all the new regulation coming in. There's a lot of uh, physician anxiety over, should I take this patient on? Should I continue their opiates? If I do, will I go to jail? Will the medical board be calling my office? You know, there's quite a bit of angst and anxiety on the prescriber's part and not enough education to say, yes, you can take these patients on, you can treat their pain, but let's have a conversation on how to reduce the amount of opiates and how to do that safely so patients don't go into withdrawal and they're compliant with your new regimen, right? So I think there's a lot of space that we could do a better job on.
1: Has the CSA or this or this pledge you're working on with uh, CASA Talked about disposing of extra medications, or like DEA takeback days. If the prescriber gives too much or the patient hasn't used it, is there education on that also?
2: Yes. So part of the discharge information um, on, and the, also on the patient brochures will include um, how to dispose of your pain medications, and that's also in the video, by the way. Um, you can definitely take it back to the pharmacy. There's other. There are other strategies. Um, And it's really state dependent. Some states allow you to flush it down. Some states don't. Um, So we discuss all of that, um, what to do with unused medication, because the last thing you need to keep it in the medicine cabinet and your child or grandchild gets to it. So we're pretty aggressive with teaching those concepts. Uh,
3: I I was listening to what you guys were, uh, were talking about, and I was really surprised when I took a look recently at how there's virtually no literature on tapering strategies and like percentages over what period of time. Is that something you guys get into at all? It it definitely seems like a gap in the literature that is sort of uh, ripe for investigation.
2: Right. So that's part of the curriculum that you see that is upcoming at the ASA meeting. That's this October, later on this month. We're actually doing a special interactive series um, based on the FDA REMS education blueprint for healthcare providers and opiate prescribing. And a big portion of that um, seminar is to discuss how to taper, right? So, a, how to risk stratify patients. We risk stratify patients for heart surgery. We risk stratify patients for um, ambuli- ambulatory surgery. We risk stratify patients for so many different processes and different pathologies in health. But we don't really risk stratify, or are in the regular uh, pattern of risk stratifying opioid patients or pain patients, right? So. Understanding who to take on and what kind of risk they pose to themselves. Number two is how to wean. So how to taper, how to wean. And I really believe that this is the job, a fundamental job of us as pain physicians. Right. Typically, I've seen a lot of pain physicians in my pain community turf it back to the PCPs. Say, here's what I recommend. Go back to your PCP. He'll help you get off the pain medication. But this is a really great opportunity for us as pain physicians to highlight the work that we're doing and demonstrate our value. Because if we can say, let's take ownership of these patients, let's help the PCPs by taking them off these medications or tapering them down, you know, we're going to demonstrate a lot of value to the healthcare system by taking ownership. So we, we do cover that as part of this ASA um, opioid analgesic um, uh, seminar series.
1: I've listened to the seminar series. It's actually pretty good. It's fun interaction. It goes by pretty quick. That's at www.asahq.org, or you could watch Shalini and her colleagues give it at the next meeting in a couple of weeks. I have a curious question. Have you got any pushback from any of the surgeons, other pain physicians in your community, patients, about tapering, about these videos, about the education?
2: You know, not necessarily about the education or the, or, um, the video. What I'm seeing more often is a lot of patients coming to me and they say, look, doc, my PCP won't prescribe anymore because he's afraid he's going to go to jail. And so I've called around, can you take me on? Because I don't know what to do. These pain medications help me function um, and no one is willing to prescribe them for me. And with all this new regulation, I don't know what else to do, right? And these are what we call legacy patients. We all see these patients where the PCP won't prescribe anymore or their previous pain physician doesn't feel comfortable prescribing anymore. And we're left with an entire population of patients who can't find relief, can't find physicians who's gonna prescribe for them because we're in an environment that's completely different. In an environment of fear. If I write this extra Percocet or this extra hydrocodone, am I gonna to go to jail? Am I going to be you know, called by the DEA? Right? We can, I think we can all identify with that. So. That's the pushback I'm seeing is, you know, a lot of patients say, then what do I do, doc? Who do I go to?
1: Do you have any advice for those practitioners or for those patients who happen to be listening to this podcast?
2: We do cover it in the ASA um, seminar, um, but I can tell you that, again, with the legacy patients, as long as they demonstrate some aspect of flexibility, adaptability, and you show them that the ev- there is no great evidence for long-term opiate use, let's bring you down to a level that's safe, that doesn't do much harm for you, that diminishes your risk of adverse events. And most patients, those who are willing to engage in that type of conversation and those patients who are willing to be adaptable, I think you'll feel uh, much more comfortable taking on. Right? There are some patients come in and say, look, this is what works, this is what I need, and <laughs> you need to give it to me. And you know from the start that you know there's there's a little bit of flexibility. And as physicians, we need to be flexible too. And so do the patients. So I think if there's mutual um, flexible, um, you know, relationship, I think that's the best way to approach it.
0: I think that uh, you mentioned fear, uh, mistrust um, on both sides of that uh, relationship. I think that's a lot of it. What has to do with this problem moving forward and that we're going to have to deal with both. Uh, well, Eric, Gary, and I are all on, uh, social media and interacting on that forum. And most of the time we're, uh, stri- restricting our conversations amongst physicians and other practitioners. But I noticed recently that, uh, we had a series of conversations about opioid free anesthetics and, uh, surgical care. And there was some, uh, what I presume to be a, a non-physician patient, uh, speaking up in in that conversation, uh, quite upset that we as doctors now are trying to get patients to have surgery without pain medication. That's their interpretation of it. Um, So, uh, you know, again, speak to the education piece about uh, opioids and controlling and restricting that versus analgesia and and providing good pain control um how have your conversations in the development of this project related to that distinction in educating both the populace and then how physicians need to be talking to our patients about the difference between that
2: i think if you approach it with the idea that if you know if you can risk stratify patients and you can have meaningful conversations with them about their overall health um I think most patients will understand where you're coming from. I don't know yet how I feel about opiate-free anesthesia or opiate-free analgesia. There was a paper out of UCLA about a year ago, which for colorectal patients which demonstrated no benefit, no difference in the number of pills patients were discharged with, whether they received opiate-free anesthesia or not, right? So I don't know if it really moves the Pendulum, or if it moves the conversation in a direction that's meaningful for patients, because ultimately they're still going home with the same number of pills; they still have the same number of OME at the end of the day. So I, f- I'm more of the, um, and I could be of the minority opinion, but I'm still of the minor of the opinion that, you know, we should first and foremost treat pain, make sure patients don't suffer, make sure that they're they're alleviated, and then start having concomitant conversations about in preparation for discharge you're only going home with this much or you only typically will need this much and this is how to um, these are some other strategies that you could use look because i think philosophically philosophically i feel that americans just can't suffer um and so if we can prepare them and put some expectations in front of them ahead of time i think that's going to make a better um Better outcomes rather than just letting them know that you're not going to have any pain medications when you come for surgery, right? So I, that's just my opinion. I I think this is a great conversation topic, and be so delighted to see someone debate this at one of the ASRA meetings to really understand does it make a difference? Do patients do better when we do opiate free anesthesia? I don't know.
3: Yeah, just following up. This is Eric again. I I, I was I was one of the uh, I was actually the moderator for the. Uh, Asked the experts panel at the Spring Azure meeting in uh, Las Vegas, where we did an opioid-free topic, and it was a, it was a real good panel. And um, I think the consensus among probably all four of us and almost everybody in the audience is that, you know, may, maybe the better term would be opioid minimizing right. or, um, or 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 reduced reduced doses rather than truly an opioid-free. It's more just kind of a buzzword that, that shows up and, and it's kind of a nice uh, sound clip, but I don't know if it's necessarily always practical in, in a lot of situations. But that being said, um, just to play devil's advocate, I thought one of the issues related to the, the paper you mentioned and just in general in doing it is that if you do just a purely opioid-free anesthetic and don't change the rest of the hospital admission it's kind of like what do you really expect to happen exactly. you have to have this you have to have the surgeon on board to also maintain it it really should be called an opioid free admission if that's what you're truly trying to do because then from the beginning intraop period and post-op period you avoid opioids the entire time if that's what you're really trying to study so if if you just do it an intraop and then allow people to to dump them in and ramp it up post-op, then at the end of the admission, of course, they're going to need more because you can't just abruptly exactly stop it all. So maybe we should, you know, maybe the study should look at a five-day admission of opioid-free and then maybe we'll have a better thought, uh, a better idea about that. I don't know if you have any. Uh, you
2: know, the thing is, is, is like, there's almost like a hysteria around opiates now. There is a role for them, right? You know, you come for surgery, surgery is probably one of the most, stimulating experiences that your body will ever go through. And there is a role for opiates. But I think that we carry that conversation too far in the post-op period, you know, historically right for 30 days because no one wants a phone call for 30 days, you know. So um, I agree with you that we treat pain when patients have pain. But when they go home, you know, a reasonable supply of pain medication is, is needed. And after that, you know, you're going to have to rehabilitate uh, it is going to be painful, and you're going to have to work through it, right? Um, but I don't want—see, we go back and forth with this pendulum of opiate-free, no, let's treat complete. Let's treat pain, let's not treat pain. Um, it's going back and forth so often and so fast that it's difficult, to, frankly, for me to keep track of where we are.
1: I think they bring it up in the ASA uh, course that you're doing. I think the next step is us as anesthesiologists and pain physicians is— more of a transitional pain service going from acute in the operative period, let's say opiate sparing, opiate free, to the few days after and the months. And I think the next thing we should be looking at, we're always looking at, do we give opiates, do we not? But it's also, how do we function faster back from surgery? The whole point of having, let's say a knee replacement is to get the patient back walking. So if they get back walking faster, further, get back to their normal daily life and rehabilitate, it seems like it's okay to give a few opiate pills if that's what gets them from the means to the end. I think that's where the research has to go
2: next. Right, and also looking at quality, right? How do you measure high-quality pain care? Is it that patients always consistently say they have no pain? Is it that they're up and walking? You know, how do we measure quality? And so this brings me to something that's recently that I've just um, have been debating in our institutional pain committee is CMS, Will be removing all the pain questionnaires from the HCAP scores. So, you know, historically the HCAP scores about a year ago were, did your hospital or your did your doctor do everything they possibly could control your pain? You know, that, and that was in accordance with all the Joint Commission fifth vital sign questions and that philosophy at the time. So CMS went back about a year ago and they revisited those questions and now started talking about did your pain did your team talk about pain? Did we communicate to you about pain options? And as of January 1st, 2020, CMS is completely removing those questions from any other HCAPs questionnaires, meaning we will no longer be able to um, quantify or demonstrate quality of how we're treating treating pain in the hospital setting. That's going to be remarkable. You know, we no longer have to track and trend. Did we do a good job with pain?
0: Well, I was. I'm reminded of. Uh, um uh, I, I do a lecture series with our uh, nurses that are brand new nurses coming to the floor, and we do a pain management course with them. And it's the the course is run by our nurse leadership, and then I'm talking about the pain management stuff. And um, one of the things that the nurse leadership talks to these new graduates about is the HCAP scores about the pain score, and they, they say, did mm-hmm. your team do everything about uh, for your pain? And the way the nurses interpret that is that Uh, patients will ding the nurses if their pain is poorly controlled. And and it strikes me every time I listen to that because what it tells me is that what's being educated out there is that to prevent bad scores, nurses are probably going to be more aggressive in giving opioids than necessary just for fear of getting bad scores. And that's actively being taught. And they think it's the right thing. And so every time I say no 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 that's not the way <laughs> that was intended and that's not really what they want you to do it's completely contrary to what their teaching is in nursing school and so Um, And it reminds me of the, you know, the sort of the classic teaching about how mankind screws up natural environments. You know, if there's a rodent problem, you introduce snakes and then there's a snake problem. So you introduce some birds to eat the snakes and then there's a bird problem and then there, you know, it just keeps going on and on and on. And I feel like that's what we're doing with this opiate problem. We said, okay, there's a problem with not enough pain control. So we're going to overdo it and do it the other way. Now we said, oh, we Mm -hmm. overdid it. Now let's overdo it the other way. And we can't seem to settle on it like a reasonable middle somewhere.
2: Yeah, totally agree with you. And that's, again, going back to measuring how we're doing, right? We can settle if we find out, if we know that we're doing a good job, but I don't think that there's a way. And The most rudimentary way is OME, right, or morphine equivalents. Yeah. Your patient is on um, this much, and that's too high. Therefore, you're not doing a good job with pain control. You know, I think it's we need to do a better job of assessing quality for pain.
1: Now with the HCAP scores out of the way in January, how do you, do you have any good advice on to how to evaluate pain or how your institution is doing, especially to historical controls? Now that we're changing some of these findings,
2: right? So that's the debate that we're having: is how we're going to measure how we're doing. Um, the good thing is is that pain scores and pain questions will no longer be tied to reimbursement to hospitals. Okay, so that's that's number one. But number two is depending on your vendor for your scores we use press Ganey but every hospital is different. Uh, press Ganey still has some questions that your hospital or your patient experience um, leadership can put into the into the um, questionnaires. So while these will not be reportable or reported to CMS or and there's no reimbursement tied to it, you can still track and trend. Um, how you're doing from a pain perspective. So we decided to keep a couple questions in specifically about how we communicate about pain, because I think fundamentally that's what patients want to know and they want to feel right. They feel validated when we ask about their pain, they feel validated when we take interest in their pain, that we're trying to treat their pain aggressively. Um, When they complain about pain, that we take it seriously and we act with a reasonable response time So we're going to keep those questions in, but it's really up to every hospital. Like I said, you know, it's not mandated anymore.
0: So, Shalini, as we wrap up this conversation, I'd um, love to let you have uh, a minute or so just to talk about this REMS program one more time at the ASA. Um, What should people know about it? Who should be signing up? And um, if they miss it at this fall meeting, what's the best way for them to learn some of this material?
2: Sure. So this um, program is part of the ASA um, annual meeting, and it is from a grant from the FDA that was given to the France Foundation um, and subsequently to the ASA to educate anesthesiologists about pain um, and opioids and risk mitigation strategies, as well as tapering, MAT, um, all the nuanced topics and patient scenarios that come come with treating pain okay and that could be treating pain in a hospitalized patient after surgery that could be treating pain in a pain clinic Um, and so it's very interactive the first couple hours are the bread and butter um, you know nuts and bolts Um, the second two hours are really about these very um, delicate topics that we come across and it's it's very interactive. So the audience will interact with us. We'll have great discussions about what do you do with this type of patient? What do you do with that type of patient? Because the reality is the textbook version of patients just doesn't exist. They, there are very a lot of subtleties that come into treating pain. How do I know? You know, I have a feeling that this patient may abuse or may be diverting, but I'm not sure. Is it truly that they're in pain, that I'm just under treating, or are they seeking? right? These are the inner dialogues that go in our head, and we're going to work through some of those and how to uh, approach these types of problems in a more structured format. So um, that is the nuts and bolts of that program. Um, The good thing is, is that it also is available online. So you can log on to the ASA website and you can take the course through the online modules and you'll get about three CME credit hours. And I bring that up because like California, and I think many states now have a requirement through the medical board that you must, you know, complete a certain amount of opioid or pain education in order to maintain a medical license in your state. So in California, we have a 12-hour requirement. I'm not sure about other states, but we have partners, uh, we have partnered with many of the medical state societies so that this course, whether you take it in person or online, will suffice for your medical board license it'll be sufficient for, for maintaining your license. So that's a great thing. Um, so if you need it for your state, this is a great resource. Um, high high content, uh, Dr. Rathmel, uh, Dr. Rosenquist, Dr. Suresh, great, um, great content and expert leaders who came up with the content as well. So you can know you're going to get high quality education.
0: That's great. And um, I, I think that this is an important topic. I think we're Uh, trying to find a way to get to that middle ground of not overreacting and yet still uh, providing good pain relief to our patients. And there's a lot of re-education that needs to occur in our patients and in our providers out there. So I think this is an important effort. And I appreciate you guys making this an open effort, not just something that's uh, proprietary to a certain small group. I think that's really important for the entire effort that you guys are going through. Um, I really want to thank you, Shalini, for joining us. Um, This has been a fantastic conversation. I think that we talk about the opiate epidemic in different formats uh, all the time, but it never seems to be enough. There seems to be another angle to this issue all the time. Gary and Eric, I want to thank you guys also for making it on the conversation, and I hope everybody goes to azure.com and checks out the upcoming meetings, and uh, we can hopefully see you guys there in person. Uh, I'll also be at the ASA for a brief period. I think Gary and Eric, you guys are maybe coming for part of it, I believe. Yep. I'll, I'll be Absolutely. in Orlando and Louisiana if anyone's there as well.
3: I'll try to peel Gary away from the Magic Kingdom, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly.
0: <laughs> so if you can find us amongst that uh, large crowd of people in Orlando, you can also come say hi to us there. So thank you again, Shalini, and this has been a great conversation. Thanks. Thank you.